Welcome to the Church Basement Podcast. Today's topic is witnessing history. Grab a cup of coffee or tea, strap on your running shoes, or pick up your knitting needles or crochet hook and join us. Let us introduce ourselves. I'm Pastor Amanda Zentalo, and I serve as the pastor at Central Lutheran Church in Northeast Portland, Oregon. And I'm Don Miller, a member here at Central and the producer of the podcast. Okay, so we have talked recently about the fact that you've had the opportunity to go to the installation of your dear friend, Megan. Mm-hmm. What we haven't talked about necessarily is the historic nature of this installation and what that all means. Yeah. So let me start with, when did you know that this was going to be something big or historic or noteworthy? Megan and I knew that if they were called to this position, it would be historic way back when they began contemplating the potential. And in the Sierra Pacific Synod, they actually had nominations over a year and a half ago. Okay. Months before the pandemic began. And then their Senate assembly and the vote for Bishop was postponed for an entire year. Oh, wow. So Megan was a candidate, a publicly known candidate for over a year. Which is unusual, right? Because usually you're a candidate and then not long after that, the whole process takes place. And oftentimes it can even be just in the same weekend. We've talked about how a bishop's election in the ELCA works on Mm -hmm. our podcast before. Folks can go back and take a listen to some of those podcasts about it. There's been a little bit of a growing piece to kind of do a little bit of lifting names up ahead of time not pre-nominations because nominations happen the day an assembly begins, but lifting names up for consideration happens for some synods ahead of time. Sierra Pacific opted to do that and had various opportunities for people to get to know the candidates ahead of time and a long discernment process for those candidates to decide whether or not to leave their names as eligible for the process in general. Because you can turn it down, right? You absolutely can. All the way up until you have your name listed on the first ballot, then at that point you have a couple of hours to either let your name remain on the ballot, and from that point forward you've said yes, or to remove your name from that initial nomination the weekend of the election. I can't imagine spending the year of the pandemic having that kind of thing hanging over your head in addition to everything else. Yeah. That's a lot. It is a lot. One of the gifts was that since I had been through the experience of both having my name lifted up ahead of time, I only had like six or eight weeks of it. I did not have a year plus of that experience. So please, no one out there hear me comparing that experience. And I have had the experience of having my name be considered for bishop. Megan and I met and spoke on a regular accountability basis throughout the year ahead. Yes, we were absolutely doing worship together on a weekly basis on Fridays, recognizing the morning and the growing numbers of COVID cases. We were also spending time checking in with one another, holding one another accountable to the work that we were doing throughout the pandemic and me accompanying them alongside of this experience of being nominated, but not yet having an election and being in that liminal space. Because we knew it would be historic. 
not only because Megan is the first transgender bishop, but Megan is autistic and Megan is young for a bishop, mm-hmm. not the youngest. Bishop Kristen Kempel remains the youngest elected bishop in the ELCA, but still any of us who are under 45 and considered for the bishopric are young for being a bishop. Yeah. When my father-in-law was elected with a few other younger people, they were called the baby bishops, and I'm sure they were all in their early 40s. Sure. I mean, it's a big deal for our denomination to trust those of us in our early 40s with this kind of a call. And so we knew that it would be fairly historic no matter what. Throughout the actual election weekend, I was talking with Megan a lot. Sure. Calls in between votes for prayers and conversation and support. I was here at home watching live, singing along in their last speech and having as much knowledge as I could to be able to support them through the process and what it was like. Knowing, again, because of my experience, what it's like to go through that question and answer time in front of the community, what it's like to have the five minutes to say anything you want to the community, that in-between time of second-guessing yourself or not second-guessing yourself, but maybe second-guessing what to say. And so it was historic just in that the last two candidates were members of the extraordinary roster and had been ordained outside of, had been held on this extraordinary roster for some incredible years. Is that an official term or is that Mm -hmm. a term you're using? Okay. No, it's an official term. So when the ELCA made the decision to create a document called Visions and Expectations or Vision and Expectations, it's a singular vision with many expectations. Okay. They wrote that document in response to our queer brethren who were seeking ordination. And that document allowed it so that those who were openly queer and seeking ordination could be chastised and kicked out of the ELCA. And in San Francisco, that happened. And so some of those early pioneers worked together to create what is called the Extraordinary Roster. It had other names throughout it, but they borrowed from something called the Extraordinem. It was a Latin term that was rooted in an understanding that sometimes the church lives counter to the gospel and counter to the will of the Spirit. And so we do things Extraordinem. We do things out of the ordinary. We do extraordinary things in order to know that we are living within the call of the Holy Spirit. And so these individuals, there were several individuals who were ordained on this extraordinary roster before the ELCA would eventually come to welcome LGBTQIA individuals who were partnered onto the roster. In this particular election, The final two candidates, Jeff Johnson and Bishop Megan, were both extraordinary rostered individuals. They were both people that the denomination, the ELCA, did not recognize their ordinations, did not recognize their call to ministry, 
did not honor them, did not support them, did not allow them things like health insurance and retirement benefits, all of those things. And what was historical and beautiful and stunning in that election was that both of these phenomenally gifted rostered leaders were lifted up by the entire community to say they are worthy of being our bishop. And that moment alone was historic and stunning to get to witness. Now, obviously, I wasn't in the room for that. I was here in my house. I was talking to Megan on the phone in between moments and listening and being present in all of the emotions that come from finally having the gifts and skills of those on the extraordinary roster recognized in such a prominent way. Yeah, that's amazing. Okay, so after the election, how much time was there before the actual installation? I think it was like four months or five months. Okay. But Megan essentially started working almost right away, which I think is hard because the former bishop continued to serve for another month. And then Megan began their service at the beginning of July. And then the installation was in September. Several of the other bishops didn't begin until the beginning of September who were elected over the summer. But again, because Sierra Pacific had waited an extra year, Mm -hmm. they were slated to have theirs change a year earlier. Mm -hmm. And so it was just on a little bit of a different schedule. What was that particular time like? Because I can only imagine there was a lot of press and at least from a social media aspect, there's a lot of fallout that was going to happen in terms of many people being overjoyed at this particular historic nature and a lot of people being pretty angry about it. It was really mixed. It was interesting. So Megan has been very present on social media for a long time and is very familiar with how to manage social media Mm -hmm. and is very good at it. And so I would say there was a big media blitz right after the election. And then going into Pride Month, there was a bit of a media blitz in Pride Month, inevitably. And that included like Good Morning America and that kind of a piece. And again, Megan has experience doing media and press for a host of different reasons for their work throughout the years. And so they came into it with media training already on board. Bishops are usually given media training opportunities once they're elected. Because most of us as pastors don't have reason to be media trained. Mm -hmm. But it's a real skill. Mm -hmm. Learning how to talk to someone and give 30 second snippets is a super huge skill. Mm -hmm. But Megan has that and experience with it. So ELCA communications was like, you go on ahead, you know what you're doing. (laughs) And so Megan did. And the backlash, I was watching, of course, as a friend, keeping an eye on Twitter, keeping an eye on Instagram, keeping an eye on the places just to see what kind of feedback was coming. There was actually less than there has been historically. There have been other times in Megan's ministry where there has been more outrage and more cruelty and more danger 
happen in those first months, which was surprising. Nice. We can grow and learn. Well, I don't know about that. Okay. I'm not going that far. Okay. (laughs) But the vitriol was dialed down. I think maybe because there are other targets right now. I don't know. But it was a little bit less than I anticipated. Or maybe just that we're accustomed to a certain level of danger. And so anything that doesn't rise to that level isn't as bad. I think one thing that folks don't recognize is that if you are openly trans on the internet with a certain level of followers, you will receive death threats Mm -hmm. on a regular basis. In the same way that being a feminine presenting individual with a certain number of followers, you will receive threats of violence, whether physical or sexual. That's just the reality of our internet and the way that people interact in people's DMs on Twitter and Instagram. And so maybe in some ways you just become accustomed to a certain level, sadly. Mm -hmm. There were things that were awful that happened. Don't get me wrong. There were things that were inappropriate and negative and cruel and not okay that happened. They were less than... I feared, and I believe less than Megan feared at first. So I'll just say it that way for that in-between time. And there was the initial media blitz, and then things kind of settled. And there was an awareness that there would be another media blitz here for the installation. And there absolutely was. It got picked up by the Associated Press, and from the Associated Press, it ran in many of the major newspapers Megan had the invitation to go on the BBC. NPR ran some more pieces on them. And so it was all part and parcel of the reality of what was going to happen. When you were there for the actual installation, how much of that media presence were you aware of? Or was it really just for the ceremony itself? Or did they keep it media free? Oh, no, the media was there for lots of the different events. Okay. And all of the bishops are encouraged to do a media junket, are encouraged to try and get the media interested. Sure. It's just that I think Megan was already known to a lot of media, and so it's easy to make a connection there and chose to hire someone specifically for that kind of communications work. And so that makes a big difference as well. Sure. So how did it differ from what you expected? Mm. I know this sounds odd, but it was longer days and faster days than I expected. Oh, I can see that. I should have known that it would be super fast and super packed and 13 hour days, but I think I didn't expect it to be quite so packed, but it was real packed. It was real busy. Left the hotel at 8.30 in the morning and got back at 10 p.m. Oh, man. So real full days. (laughs) Were there parts of it that you were able to be at that no one else was? Mm -hmm. Were those wonderful private moments or were they just kind of surprising that you actually had some time where nobody else was there? (laughs) Both and. Okay. (laughs) Oh, there were several. There were lots of them because I was there as Megan's support person, as Megan's assistant. So I was there to make certain that when we refilled their water bottle, 
the kind of powder that they like to flavor their water was in there. Like they handed that to me and they gave me the stack of business cards to hand out to people if they wanted one. Kind of functioning as an executive assistant in a lot of ways Sure, for those days. And so I was there all the time. And there were a couple of moments where we would finally get into the car, just the two of us, and we'd have a moment or two to take a deep breath and just check in and say hello. And the other side of it is that I was there to be the person that if an emergency did happen, I was there to support Megan through the emergency. And I have permission to talk about this now that everything is over. So one of the realities of this kind of a position, particularly for queer folks who are in these kinds of public positions, is that they are targets for violence. So Megan's family stayed away. We saw them for one hour on Friday from Thursday afternoon until Saturday after the bomb squad swept the building. There was one hour where we saw Megan's family. And the rest of the time, they stayed away because the level of danger was such that we didn't want them to be in Megan's proximity until the professionals had done a full security sweep and the security professionals were on site and watching over everyone. Megan's children are seven and nine. And the concern of them seeing Megan injured and harmed, shot, Mm -hmm. et cetera, was paramount in the planning. And so their wife had the children and grandparents and parents and kept them entertained. And so I came in, yes, to be an assistant, yes, to be there as a support, but also in case Megan was shot so that they wouldn't be alone and that they would have someone they knew to be present with them in that moment in those experiences. And so I was the person next to the person in the bulletproof vest for the weekend. That is a lot. That was my job. That was why I was there. And to be able to hold that space with a dear friend and to be able to be present along that journey, to go with them on Saturday. No, it was Friday night. We had a break in between a couple of events. We went from roller skating with the family and then the two of us left on our own. It ended up, we actually got dinner, which was great because we were trying desperately to figure out where we, where and when we were going to get dinner. Mm-hmm. And we showed up just a little bit early to the other chaplain for the San Francisco PD at his residence. And he was having uh, another friend over for dinner And they put out two more bowls of soup for us. And we sat around the dining table and we ate dinner and we're all ordained individuals. We talked about death. We talked about their calls with SFPD and working mass casualty events and working tragic deaths and blessing those who've died in the streets of San Francisco and those kinds of pieces. We had told those stories as we ate our dinner and then went into the kitchen, washed hands, and then Megan was administered last rites so that if anything happened the following day, Lutherans don't 
have the same kind of sacramental understanding of last rites as Catholics do. Mm -hmm. And they are beautiful and calming and centering. And so Megan received last rites on Friday. So if anything happened on Saturday, that that had been done. And for the four of us standing in the kitchen, holy water and words of hope, to lean into the promise of our faith that death is never the end, it was hard and it was beautiful and it was all part and parcel of the experience. Those are some of the moments. It's that moment. It's the moment after the rehearsal and when Grace Cathedral had been cleared out, everyone else was cleared out. And then Megan and I were in a specific room in a secure location while the bomb squad did their sweep. And then once that was complete was the press conference and when their family arrived. And so we had about half an hour of quiet time in this 20 minutes, more like, where we had a place to sit and be still. Megan could post a couple things on Twitter, take a deep breath, miss their children, so palpably miss their children. Yeah. But those kinds of moments, they were special. They were an honor to get to be present with Megan for. Were there any silly, joyful things that happened? I mean, I heard the word roller skating thrown in there somewhere. (laughs) There was roller skating. I think the silliest moment for me was my pocket bacon moment. Okay. (laughs) So a little protein for later. Yeah, exactly. So we had like the day of the installation was 9-11, right? It was the 20th anniversary of 9-11. So we left at like 6.45 to drive to the Palace of Fine Arts and do a 9-11 event at 7 a.m. Before the installation that afternoon. Totally. Okay. And so that was where our day started. And then we went to a breakfast with the Senate Council. And I was supposed to remember when we got to Grace Cathedral and parked to contact the assistant to the bishop and turn the keys over of the car so that the vestments could get upstairs. But I forgot. Uh Uh-oh. But we were just swiftly going along and getting things done. And so halfway through breakfast, as I'm sitting at the table with Megan and presiding Bishop Eaton, who's the presiding bishop of our denomination, I'm sitting at breakfast with them and I'm making sure that they're eating and that their stuff is coming fast because they have a rehearsal. They got places to be. Right. Mm -hmm. The rest of the people at the Senate Council breakfast don't have to be across the street, but we do. So I'm making sure those things are happening. And then I just check my phone to make sure I haven't forgotten anything. Check my little notes. Realize I've got to get the vestments there. So I ask Bishop Eaton if she would like me to take her vestments over. I make it look like I totally meant to do this. In the middle of breakfast, while we're waiting for our food, I gather up the presiding bishop's vestments. I go back over to Grace Cathedral a block away on a hill, grab Bishop Megan's vestments, my vestments, gather it all up in a great big pile. It's very like, (laughs) I mean, over the top, (laughs) right? It is what you think it is and take it out and pass them all over to the Bishop's assistant at the Sierra Pacific Senate, pass it all over, 
dash back across the street so I can get something to eat. Got like 15 minutes. I've got to have them back over at the cathedral at 10 a.m. I get there, get my food. I start chowing down on that omelet as fast as I can to get the protein because heaven only knows what I'm going to eat next. Mm -hmm. And I finally look at the waiter and I'm like, do you have anything, not a box, anything that I could wrap up this bacon and take it with me. And he just looked at me funny. I'm like, like pocket bacon. Is there anything (laughs) that you can bring me to make this? And so he comes back out and he kind of looks at me and hands me aluminum foil. And I wrapped up my bacon in aluminum foil and I chucked it into my, my hip bag of magic and wonder. And I had pocket bacon and the service. All the bishops have gone upstairs to do the reception I gather up all those vestments and the gifts and all the things and go back downstairs to the carport, load it all up into the trunk, close the trunk. Munching on bacon. Pull out my pocket bacon. Nice. (laughs) Unwrap it like a burrito and eat my pocket bacon on my way back up to the reception as I figure out how to help people eat again. Nice. Best tasting bacon (laughs) ever, I'm going to guess. It was so good. It was so good. Okay, that delightful moment is going to lead me to my last question. Are you going to archive this anyway? Are you going to scrapbook it, put it all on a thumb drive, throw everything that you (laughs) took with you into a box? It's a great question. is it just going to live in in your brain? It's going to live in this podcast. (laughs) Okay. I think the podcast, some articles that I've shared, some posts on Facebook that'll come up, you know, one year ago today. Oh, yeah, they will. Right. The photographs that I took. And that was another piece that I was there to do was to take photographs when the photographers weren't allowed to be present. Oh, interesting. Okay. So for those some of those moments, like the moment where we had that quiet time, those sorts of things. So I've got some pretty special photographs. That's excellent. Well, thank you, Pastor Amanda, for taking the time to help us learn a little more about watching history. I look forward to sitting down with you another week on another topic. As do I. And thank you all for listening along. Your prayers and support for Bishop Megan and their family are gratefully requested. And thank you for listening to this part of my story. That's what I had to share. So I hope it gives some perspective on everything that we went through. Until we are back in your ears again, remember, God loves you no matter what.